Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. We have an interesting show for you today. I'm going to be talking with an American Arab uh, author. Her name is Aisha Abdel Gawad. She's the author of the newly released novel, Between Two Moons. Before we start, I love always to start with music. This time from Lebanon, from Fayrouz. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Okay, I'm waiting for Fayrouz to play. I would like to sing, but my voice is not that good. Okay. I don't know what Frank did here, but... Okay. Oh, I'm not going to try and sing. For some strange reason, the music is not playing. And the CD is not coming out. Okay. Let me play something from the WMNF thing. Okay. DJ. Frank, why the music is not playing? It's on. Okay, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM and I have music supposed to be playing and um, it's not, so we're going to be trying to play something else from somewhere else. Self. You should be good. No. 
Aisha, are you there? I'm here. Oh, gosh. Murphy's Law. <laughs> Anything that can go wrong with technology today decided to go wrong. Like the CD, Fayrouz won't be playing. And I would love to sing Aisha, but I am very fearful of, like, <laughs> how would that sound on there? <laughs> I'm so, so sorry for being late. Uh, That's and, okay. I understand. Uh, okay. And I have two lovely gentlemen here in the studio. You cannot see them, but they're trying to help me. I really appreciated Frank and Greg. But anyways... I am very, very happy to be talking to you, Aisha. I just finished actually listening to the audio uh, of your novel, Between Two Moons, and I have to admit it took me almost like two-thirds of the book before I realized that what the two moons meant. I mean, I'm not sure why, but we will talk about it later sure. on. So um, this is our live uh, show out of Tampa, Florida, and we are uh, taping it live uh, via uh, Zoom video, hoping that we can, uh, you know, play it uh, on YouTube. Um, and I, before we start talking about your book, like uh, when researching about your background, um, I found out that you are actually half Arab and not 100% Arab, American. So can you tell our uh, viewers a little bit of your background? Uh, I know you were born in America, but let them know you, know your background. So when we get into your book, uh, maybe they will do like what I did, trying to figure out if you are in the novel or not. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I was born in America. I was born in Virginia in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., um, where many of my family and my parents still live today. Um, I currently live in Connecticut and I work as a high school English teacher in addition to being a writer. And my father is from Egypt. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. And my mother is from Scotland. So, yes, you're right. I'm only half Arab, um, but Arab in my heart. You know. Yeah, I am sure. And probably the food too is in your heart because I was reading, uh, again, Googling about you. I found a very interesting article in Bon Appetit, but we're going to talk about it later on. I think uh, in your attempt to introduce your husband to your Egyptian family, the larger Egyptian family and the issue of food. Uh, but we're going to be talking about it later on. So did you, uh, the book, the plot of the book to our listeners is about an Egyptian family um, and two generations, the mother and the father who were born in Egypt, and then the three siblings who were born uh, uh, in uh, the US in New York, uh, Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. Have you lived there? Or this is all uh, your imagination because I've never been to Bay Ridge, but I felt like, wow, I would like to visit it now. You should. You should. It's a great place to visit. Um, I have lived in Brooklyn. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for a few years um, and I worked in Bay Ridge. I didn't live there, but I did work there. So I traveled there every day. Um, and still go to visit and spend time in Bay Ridge as often as I can, even now that I live in Connecticut. Um, it's one of the largest Arab American communities um, in the United States. Um, a lot of more recent immigrants, I would say, Arab immigrants compared to even other neighborhoods in Brooklyn or compared to like Dearborn, Detroit. Um, yeah, and, and, and folks from all over the Arab world. 
So uh, it's not necessarily all like a Muslim community, is it? Is it all Muslim, but and uh, from Arabic background? So are there Pakistanis, India, Southeast Asians, or it's a concentration really of Arabs and Arab immigrants in that area? It is a concentration of Arabs. There certainly are like Muslims from other backgrounds. There's non-Muslims. There's uh, people from Latin America, um, Jewish community. But it's a real concentration of of Arabs in particular in Bay Ridge. Okay. And did you work in New York? I did. I worked um, when I was in Bay Ridge. I worked at the Arab American Association of New York, which is a really terrific nonprofit social services agency that serves the immigrant community in Bay Ridge. Um, and they'll help with um, immigration, paperwork, green cards, uh food stamps, unemployment, English lessons, right? Really, you, you name it. Um, it's a really vital resource for the community in Bay Ridge. Is this how you got the idea of writing a novel from what I, you have seen in the different experiences of people there? I've been a, uh, interested in writing fiction for a long time, and I've been writing fiction since I was a young girl. I wrote fiction throughout uh, college, And I had been working on a series of, at the time, I thought they were stories. And then later I figured out that it was a novel about these two girls. Uh, but I didn't have a setting. Um, it, they were in New York, right? I knew they were in New York City. And it wasn't until after I started working in Bay Ridge that I got the setting. And I realized that I wanted to create a family that lived in Bay Ridge. Okay. Can you tell our uh, listeners like the gist of the novel? Like, what is it about? Sure. It's about these, as I said, these two girls, they're twin sisters um, who are born and raised in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and they're, they're Egyptian, right? They're both their parents immigrated from Egypt, and uh, they're just about to graduate from high school when the book opens. And as many young people are when they're graduating from high school, they think the whole world is ahead of them. They're very excited to explore and discover themselves and become adults. Uh, but a couple of things happened right away that sort of put um, the sort of rain on their parade a little bit. Uh, the first is at the very beginning of the novel, we see the police raid a local Arab business. And that uh, sort of frightens uh, the girls, frightens everyone in the neighborhood because they don't really know why. Right. So there's this, there's this level of, of mystery. Um, and then the second thing that happens is quite early on, they learn that their older brother, Sammy, um, is returning, is getting released on parole from prison. And he's kind of a stranger to them at this point. He's been gone for seven years. They um, aren't really sure who he is anymore. They're not really sure if they can trust him or what his influence might do to their family. So the girls are torn in the book whether they should stay and be kind of loyal to Bay Ridge um, or whether they should run away, right, and kind of become someone brand new somewhere else. Now, there are so many details um, that some of them we will mention and some of them we will keep uh, because, you know, so people when they read it, uh, they will not... Uh, Um, know how it ends and uh, all these details. But I grew up, uh, of course, in the Arab world in five different countries. When I came to America, I was almost 27 years ago, and that was like 30 years ago. So I come, I, I, I have a different experience. But 
I wrote a book in English, but I wrote uh, my first book in Arabic. And in the introduction, I tell people, this is summer experience. Uh, I live in Florida and I live in a small American town. Some other Arab might have a totally different experience, have totally different um, uh, events, might even have a totally different way of understanding and interpreting America. So in your book, it's a book that is different or in your novel, different than other uh, uh, novels written by American Arabs who try always to show that we are overachievers, uh, that we always are going to go to college or going to be doctors. But the girls and they, the twins, uh, they are in a way, um, uh, they're brought Muslim, they're fasting in Ramadan, but they're also drinking. So where, where did you get this, uh, this view uh, that is, for instance, can be different than my experience because I came here as a wife, <laughs> didn't have any such experiences before uh, coming to America or even after. The, yeah, setup, I mean, I the setup is so different than our classical minority uh, books and novels. Yeah, it was really important for me um of course, I'm, I'm very much in debt to other Arab American writers who have come before me. Um, but I wanted to think of what I had to add that was new and how I could build off of the narratives that have come before me. Um, and I think one particular experience that I was interested in exploring was the experience of being young and coming of age, right? Transitioning from child to adult in uh, this unique moment of this post 9-11 America, right? At the peak of law enforcement, surveillance and suspicion of Muslims and Arabs in America. And that's, that's really my focus. So I was writing about teenagers who are um, growing up and trying to figure out who they are at a, in a context where they feel very much unwanted, right? And very much attacked by their own homeland right? Because they're, they're Americans, right? They were born here. Um, and then the other thing, I guess I wanted to write, I wanted to allow these young people to be young people mm -hmm. and they make mistakes, right? And I didn't want to write a book that's about, um, I feel like sometimes we see two different kinds of books. We either see um, Muslims who are a hundred percent devout and they do everything perfectly and they follow a certain path, or we see Muslims a sort of, I think of a sort of an anti-Muslim narrative where Muslims are oppressed by their own religion and need to be free from Islam. Um, and of course, I didn't want to write a story like that. I mm -hmm. wanted to write a story about teenagers who are believers. They're proud to be Muslim. They have a strong relationship to God. But they're also confused. They're also teenagers. They're also experimenting and making mistakes. And the whole time, right? They can always go back to their faith. That was really important to me that they're not fleeing from faith, but in fact, their faith is a constant in the background. And whenever they get hurt or whenever they make a mistake, they can return um, and try to recenter.
If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. I am talking to Aisha Abdel Gawad, the way it is pronounced in Egyptian uh, dialect. And she is the author of a novel called, called Between Two Moons. I really would uh, suggest that you read it uh, because it's quite interesting. It's a different way of looking at um, Arab Americans and of course you picked an Egyptian family because it's a familiar culture for you. I was curious about the father because again in the Arabic narrative and the Muslim narrative and the Western narrative of a father, father is usually patriarchal, dominant, but you picked a very pleasant father <laughs> or I'm not sure if you based the, the character of the father on your own father. Uh, or, um, I mean, they are there, out there, but as in the movies, you don't see these understanding fathers and these pleasant fathers. Can you tell us a little bit about the father of these uh, girls and then Sammy, the boy? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. That was really important to me. I felt there is this strong stereotype out there of Arab Muslim fathers being strict domineering. They don't understand their children, not active parents. And that is not at all the experience that I've had um, with my own father. That's not the experience I have had with my uncles. Um, so I really wanted to break that that stereotype. Um, and I, I wanted to create a father figure who is gentle, right? Who is sensitive, um, he's not perfect, right? He doesn't always understand his children, especially because they're Americans, right? And the girls in particular are sort of a mystery to him. He, he doesn't really know what they're feeling, but he's there, he's trying, he's forgiving. Um, and he's um, he's doing his best, right? To create a, a future for them in in America, even though it's it's very difficult for him. But there was some sort of a patriarchy when it comes to the sun. And which, this is something, for instance, like me and my sister are the oldest, my sister than I, than Omar. And my mom's name is Im Omar, not Im Dina or Im Samar. And then, you know, I mean, we love our brothers to death, but you can see when my mom is around them, how she would like during dinner, like Omar and Ali seem to be getting the food first, although my mom would never allow them to raise their voice or misbehave when it comes to us, we're the number one. But there is patriarchy when it comes to your novel, when it comes to the sun. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's true for many Arab families. It's also true for many non-Arab families. I think patriarchy um, exists in so many cultures and societies. It just changes the way it looks. But absolutely, that's a dynamic in this family. Um, the parents, and of course, they've been through some traumas. This this son, Sammy, has been in a lot of trouble, right? He's been to prison, and they're desperately afraid, right? They're afraid for him. They want to save him. But I think that they spend a lot of their energy thinking about his feelings and his needs, and they expect their girls mm -hmm. to be steady, to behave, and to sort of take care of themselves, And these girls, in fact, I think at many points in the novel, need a little bit more attention from their parents, right? They're, they're kind of calling out for help, but the parents are so distracted by the boy that they can't see the needs of the girls. So do you have siblings yourself? 
I do. I have one uh, brother, full biological brother, and I also have four stepbrothers. So I have a lot of, of boys so in my life. Is there patriarchy even with the step ones? Is I there mean, favoritism? I don't like to call it patriarchy, actually. Maybe just like me with my nephew. Uh, my niece, uh, who is Egyptian and lives in Cairo, she says, you favor Hashem all the time. You know, they're almost the same age. And I find myself doing it. And I don't understand why. I think it's these messages that are sent to us that in so many subtle ways that we absorb and we don't even know that we're we're doing it. Um I'm, I think I'm pretty lucky that I've had parents who have always uh, supported me and um, I think given me kind of equal attention and love and opportunities. Um, but it's definitely something I've noticed, right? Like even amongst my extended family, right? The sort of freedom that some of the, the boys have that the girls don't always have or the freedom the boys have to make mistakes or misbehave, Um and, you know, I, I think that's, that is true in my family as well. Um, and then of course, it's something I think about too, as a mother, I have, I happen to have, I have two sons. Um, so I think about it too, as, as from a parent's point of view, what messages am I sending to my mm -hmm. kids and what am I going, going to expect of them as boys in the world? And uh, why twins? Why did you, like from the beginning? Okay, let me go back. When you plan on writing, but you have been writing the whole time. But uh, like when I wrote my books, uh, they are current events, you know, they, they are, uh, there is no imagination in them. Um, but with you, there is, it's all imagination, even if you are uh, using places that do exist, that we can visit, and I'm going to be looking for them, I'm going to be looking at the, for the Xerox shop, because it might be there, and it might not be there. But with you plotting, you are in control of destiny of this novel and these people. You can kill them, you can make them beautiful, you can make him ugly, you can make them do this and that. So what made you do a tw female, uh, f uh, twin females? Is it because there was no uh, space for one Muslim woman? And one young, I mean, Muslim girl, because you wanted to bring more diverse Muslims into the novel? You know, when I first started writing this book many years ago, um, they weren't even, they weren't twins. They weren't even sisters. They were friends. They were these two Arab girls that were like best friends. And then I kept sort of pushing them closer together. So I made them cousins and then I made them sisters. And then finally I made them twins. Mm -hmm. And I think I was interested in sort of the symbolism being twins. Um, and what I was really interested in exploring is the concept of sisterhood. And of course, um, and the intimacy that is that I think women are capable of. I think women are capable of building these tremendously close, supportive, intimate relationships. Um, and in a world that can be very difficult to be a woman, I think women often save each other. And I was really interested in exploring that and showing how these two sisters sort of love and support each other. So in the novel, they're literally uh, twins, but I think the larger ideas are about how, like I don't have any sisters, let alone twins, mm -hmm. for example, but I think I have these female friendships in my own life that have um, really been 
the places where I can thrive and grow, um, especially when the world is unkind to a woman. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do have a sister and we became friends after she got married. When we were younger, we were exactly like the twins and how you mentioned them in your novel, bickering, but uh, when there is really a need uh, for uh, support, uh, you will find that your sister is the the haven out there, is, is the best place you can go to to just express yourself and you feel safe if your sister knows about your problem or whatever she you may not listen to her advice but uh, yes i can see how important to have uh, uh, sisters and twins in the novel now i'm gonna go to like uh, dig deep because you do not mention politics but there is so much politics involved in the novel but um, I, of course, as an American Muslim who was living in the U.S. for God knows how many years before September 11 happened, um, I, I related so much to what you were insinuating to, which is surveillance, uh, which really we kind of felt it, but we could not put our hands on it. We could not tell people, oh, Yes, this guy or that guy. How did you bring this into the novel? Because I would say most of the novel is really about surveillance and what it does to your maybe confidence, self-esteem. This is how I felt. I felt that it was the most heavy part of the book, but without like throwing it in our face the whole time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's really the sort of central idea and it sort of permeates everything. It permeates the relationships in the family. It permeates the community and how they interact and how they see each other, how they interact with law enforcement, how they interact with the outside world, how young people uh, develop their hopes and dreams for the future. Um, and I think you're right. It was, I wanted to capture the feeling of of knowing that you're being watched, but not being able to prove it. Um, and knowing that there are enemies and threats around you and not being, not knowing where and not knowing who to trust. Um, and I think this was a really insidious project that was enacted on so many Arabs and Muslims in America. Um, and, you know, one thing is, you know, Arabs are renowned for their hospitality, right? And their welcoming of strangers. And I think this project of surveillance made us go against our own cultural instincts, you know, to welcome a stranger because you have a stranger in the masjid. All of a sudden you're wondering, who is that? Mm -hmm. Is that an enemy? Is that someone who's here to trick me, trap me, or spy on me? Um and I, I don't think it's something, first of all, I don't think it's something that's over, but I also, I don't think it's something that we as a nation, as a society have reckoned with the repercussions of that um, enough. And I, I, again, I was interested in how does that change the way someone grows up in that environment? So how did that reflect on the girls, for instance, the twins and the relationship with their brother and the larger community? You can give us like bits and pieces of what you, how it affected them. Yes. You know, I think that they feel these competing impulses and one of them is to get away from Bayridge. And I think the reason they want to get away is because they feel that Bayridge is 
not always safe, but they, they don't know why it's not safe, right? But they can feel like there's a reason why the book opens with the scene of the police raiding a business. Um, and there's other acts throughout the book, um, hate crimes, right? Other acts um, that make it feel like the community is under attack. So the girls, in some sense, you know, see them in these scenes where they run away, right? And they kind of try to escape from that. And then they have a competing impulse, which is to return to Bay Ridge and to defend their community, right? To be loyal, um, to stay together. So if the mosque is vandalized, uh, they'll go with the, to the mosque with their family and they'll, they'll help clean it up. Um, and so they're not really sure they're torn, right? Is there a way to run from this threat or is there a way to stay and, and fight and kind of build bonds of solidarity as a community? I think one of the major problems is how to trust, like you mentioned, but the idea of informants. And, uh, you know, we had on our show uh, a young uh, American investigative reporter who lives in Tampa, and he wrote actually a book on the industry of informants and how much money and how much budgeted into the FBI budget millions and millions of dollars because every informant will get like a hundred thousand minimum a year to be an informant so they didn't trust new people like you said they were meeting um, but you did something very interesting in the novel you included a whole chapter of what would the fbi or whoever is spying on muslims would look at things that you and i might find absolutely ridiculous can you tell us, like tell our listeners, what is it that you included in your uh, book, in the novel? And if you, if there were things that caught your attention the way I would think, there is no way they're going to find a terrorist if you are looking at these things. I mean, yes. they could easily come and ask us, but anyways. Yes, Um yeah, so I wrote, uh, as you as you mentioned, there's a whole fictionalized NYPD police report in the novel uh, formatted with a, like a police report with maps and um, and graphs and uh, redaction. Right. So parts of the report are blocked out. And I was inspired by real NYPD documents um, that were published by the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. Um, they published a series of of uh articles and reports in 2012. That was the kind of first time that they broke the story of the NYPD's illegal surveillance of Muslims. Um, And it was a treasure trove for me. I read dozens of documents, dozens of times. And it's, um, you know, you may read the report in my novel. And as you said, you may say, well, this is ridiculous. It's it is, and that is exactly what the real NYPD documents are like. Mm-hmm. Um, things like you go into a coffee shop and you report the number of chairs inside. Um, one of my favorite details that recurs through so many of these police reports is what TV station is playing in any given Arab business. And if an Arab business uh, was playing Al Jazeera, that was marked as a red flag uh, for extremism. But if an Arab business was not playing Al Jazeera and was playing another news station, it was also marked as a red flag because it was like, what are you hiding? Why aren't you playing Al Jazeera? Um, It's absurd. Um, And, you know, what kind of library books people got 
out of the library, where they got their haircut, where they went to the gym. Um, truly the most minute and mundane details. And all of it was reported with a sense of menace, um, which really made me think there, no matter what we do as Arabs or Muslims, uh, there's no way of proving that we're mm-hmm. not terrorists, that we're not extremists, that we're not a threat. Uh, because all we have to do is go to the laundromat and get our hair cut. And, we, and still we manage to find ourselves in these police reports as if we're a dangerous menace, a threat to American society. It was interesting to read it. Uh, I mean, it's sometimes at, in parts it was laughable, but because Ahmed and I, my co-hosts, we have done several stories about it and we would say, you guys could have saved billions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars if you came to us. And and uh, I mean, the FBI did uh, come, for instance, to our mosque and we spoke with them and we talked to them. But for instance, one day we have this very blonde looking 18 years old and he tells us he's from Turkey and he just converted to Islam and he's very radical. We take him to one of the events where a church had a guy who wrote a Quran and he was giving a lecture as a Christian man how he wrote the Quran. So anyways, this guy becomes like, he stands up and he says, Allahu Akbar, uh, this is blasphemy and you Muslims are sitting here and doing nothing and we're looking at him. No, we're not going to do anything. And then he disappears. So it's it, it just like the like you said, the mosque is no longer an open place because we have so many people who are thinking of converting and usually they are women and they come to the mosque. And the first thing I am thinking, how am I going to figure out if she is an FBI informant and how I have to be very careful. I can't be very kind. I can't bring her to my home. And this was very visible uh, in your uh, novel. But did you feel it as Aisha? Like when you were living in uh, Virginia or if you were, or if you are living now in Connecticut, do you feel it as a teacher in particular with, with things that you may ask your students to read or? I, I definitely did feel it um, when I was working in Bay Ridge and even before, you know, um, being in, in, even in when I was in high school, right? Um, 9-11 happened when I was, I was a ninth grader. I was a freshman in high school. Um, so even going to events, uh, whether they were kind of Arab community events or going to the mosque or traveling, especially when I was with my father um, or my brother, um, right, feeling a sense of uh, that we had to be really careful, um, people asking too many questions, being nosy, right? This kind of sense of suspicion, Um, and, you know, now when I think about it all these years later, I think about how much more sophisticated the surveillance will be now than it was in 2010, for example. Now we have apps and things that can be spying on you without you knowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tools have only intensified, um, and I think the ability to know whether or not you're being tracked is, is harder than ever. And much easier, but uh, let me remind our listeners that we are talking to Aisha Abdel Gawad, who wrote a very, very interesting novel called Between Two Moons. And I have to tell you, it took me a long time to figure out the two moons. What are the two moons? And why you based it on Ramadan? What's the significance of Ramadan? I mean, our listeners, we always talk about Ramadan during the month of Ramadan, but like, why did you pick this month to be the whole story almost? 
I think I wanted to amplify a feeling of intensity and high stakes. Um, I knew I wanted to set it in the summer. There's something about being a teenager, a young person in the summer. Um, summer can feel very intense for teenagers. Summer is a time of transformation. A teenager likes to become a different version of themselves before the school year starts in the fall. And then I wanted to layer on top of that Ramadan because, uh, you know, there's this component of self-reflection um, and attempts to be the best version of yourself, right? That's that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the point of the fast, right? Is to purify mm -hmm. and cleanse and build a relationship with God. Um, so I, I wanted to, there's this added pressure that the girls feel um, this expectation that they live up to the task of, of Ramadan. And also it's a time of community, right? A time of family gathering and eating together and going to the mosque. Um, and so I wanted to show this family and this neighborhood trying to come together during the holy month, um, but also being fractured apart by all these external threats and, and problems that they face. Have you experienced Ramadan in an Arab country and in Egypt in particular? Only once. Um, I would love to to do it again. Um, I've only been in Egypt once um, during Ramadan and it was um, fascinating for me how different. Um, Can you explain to our listeners how the two Ramadans are different? Well, you know, as any of your listeners who have lived or spent a lot of time in the Arab world, they'll know It's like the whole... Most of my listeners uh, are Americans, by the way. <laughs> well, then maybe they won't they know. know but they won't know. I didn't know. So when you go to, to Egypt, for example, uh, because that's you know what I know about, um, the whole country shifts for Ramadan. The whole country adapts, right? Even though, of course, there's non-Muslims in Egypt. Um, the hours of businesses, schools, um, everything right? The whole schedule of daily life adapts to the fast, to accommodate the fast, to make it easier. Um, and this, you feel it all around you. The streets are decorated. It's very festive. Um, restaurants are just full of people, right? Um, the mosques, right, are, are kind of overflowing and you just feel it all around you. In America, right? Or at least most places in America, maybe not in a place like Dearborn mm -hmm. or Bay Ridge, where there's a lot of Arabs and a lot of Muslims, you don't feel it at all, right? You have, It's a thing you do alone and by yourself, you know, especially I'm thinking again, from the perspective of teenagers, they could be like, you know, maybe there's some other Muslim kids in their class, but mostly like they gotta, they have to go to soccer practice. They have to take their exams. It doesn't matter. You have to go to work. Um, you can't sleep, Right during the day, you have to kind of it's it's more grueling. Yeah, it's more grueling, difficult. and it's and it's lonely too sometimes. So uh, again, the story is between uh, two moons, and uh, for our listeners, this is how uh, this is the Muslim following the Muslim calendar. So uh, according to the movement of the moon or citation of the moon, this is where we start our break, uh, fasting and how we uh, break it uh, during uh, Eid. And then you mentioned a little bit about uh, the Hajj. I'm gonna ask you, um, no politics. I think one, I mean, no, no Iraq war, no invasion, not, not a word. I know maybe teenagers because the, the, you know, the, it's mainly, um, the, the two twins and then their brother. But although in many ways it's a, a, 
a book related to the politics that caused uh, this surveillance, let's say, and lack of trust because of uh, informants and all that. Um, you, not a word, um, maybe once the mention of Palestine and BDS in the context, in a very, very logical context of a demonstration, no Iraq war, no invasion, maybe you mentioned Kabul or Afghanistan. I like that, to be honest with you, because I didn't want a history lesson why I am trying to figure out these girls and trying to figure out if you are part of this book or not, if this is your dad or not. Now I know it can't be your mom because your mom is Scottish. But did you really mean not to have... I mean, it's a political book, but it is apolitical. Did you mean to write it in this way? I did, but it took a lot of revision to get it that way. I think in earlier drafts, it was a lot more overt um, a lot more, maybe, you know, really overt, obvious mentions to Iraq, to the war on terror. Um, and I think as I got older and matured a little, and also I just had the space and time to revise my own work, um, I was able to, I think you're right. I do think of it as a very political book, but without any of those sort of overt mentions. So the, the context of the book is the war on terror, right? And the war on terror is so amorphous, right? Two decades of wars on multiple fronts. Um, it's a very mysterious war that just spreads and grows. Um, that is the context in the background for the book, even though I don't talk about it, right? But these are, this is uh, what has radically shifted the experience of Arabs and Muslims in the US. Um, and I think, also, you know, it wasn't a book that was about the experience of Iraqis in Iraq, um, right? It was the experience of Arab Muslim teenagers in Brooklyn. So there is a, a remove, a distance mm -hmm. um, from those wars, but those wars have had a fundamental impact, of course, on, on Muslims and Arabs in the United States. Actually, I like that part very much because sometimes you really don't want to be bombarded with the, the Arab-Israeli conflict or with uh, all the politics because you're trying to figure out these girls and how they are uh, adjusting. And I really like that. Did you, how long did it take you to write it? 11 years, you said, almost given? Yeah, did, yeah, it took a long time. Okay. When did you finally have the courage to say, okay, that's it. I have a novel. I'm going to start looking for a publisher because that's by itself is a, a lot of work. Yes. Um, I was lucky enough to get uh, an agent, a literary agent, um, earlier on when I still had quite a messy draft and the book was not ready to be sent to publishers. And she and I worked on it uh, for a couple of years together. And she is the one who said, okay, we're ready. Um, oh. And I trust her. She does this for a living. Um, and so she's the one who after another round of edits together said, let's send it out. Um, so I was really lucky to have her um, kind of guide me. And that's really, you know, when you're writing literary fiction in the U.S. at least, um, that's step number one is you have to have an agent. Um, the publishing houses won't even look at you if no. you if you don't have one. I learned that the hard way. So mm -hmm. uh, was it like accepted from the first attempt or it took a while uh... And who's the publisher, uh, if I may ask? It's um, Doubleday. 
which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Um, I was uh, very lucky that I had some strong responses and interest um, from a few different publishers um, and that the book, you know, went to auction and got multiple bids, um, which was a tremendously privileged experience because I got to then choose um, and I got to choose um, I, I talked with some really, really smart, wonderful editors, and it was a very tough decision, but I ultimately uh, went with Doubleday because I thought they asked me the best questions about the book, and they were going to push the book to be the, the strongest it could be. And did you show it to anybody of Arab or Muslim background to read it before you go into print and stuff like that? Not in its entirety, Um, I shared maybe some bits and pieces, um, and I had some short stories that were sort of inspired by the book uh, published separately. Um, I did have my dad check all the check all the Arabic, um, or I, you know, text him and say, "How would we say this in Egyptian? Or is this yeah. right?" Um, and so he he definitely corrected my Arabic a few times. Now I have to ask you the tough questions. So, for instance, as I told you from the beginning, we have different experiences, and Muslims are not one lot. Uh, even the ones in America, few are in Virginia, not like me in a small American town. Um, very conservative, actually, uh, whether American, white, uh, Republican, that's where I live, or the Muslim community where I live. If I give it to, if I give it to mothers to look at it, to give it to their daughters, Muslim mothers, they might object that there is a lot of uh, the F word, for instance, a lot of swearing, um, a lot of sex, uh, there is drugs. I know these, th these things do exist. Okay, in every community and every minority, and we're not going to be covering it up. But did you have uh, like second thoughts how the Muslim community will look at it? Especially you mentioned a lot of mosques in uh, Bay Ridge. Like how would they feel reading the book? Did Was this a concern to you? I definitely had that thought. Um And I just kind of had to push it away. I needed to write the book that I needed to write. Um, and I needed to write about a complicated experience that felt authentic to these characters. Um, and I would hope, I think that some people may hear that. Oh no, there's, uh, there's some cursing. Um, there's some sex or sexual violence. Uh, there's um, drinking. Oh no. It must be a book that's sort of like anti-Islam, right? And that's unfortunate that people may think that before they've even read the book. But my hope is that if people did read the book, I think of this book as very pro-Muslim, right? I think of it as a book of people who make mistakes, who are complicated, who are different from each other. Um, but ultimately get a lot of strength from their religion, right? Um, and I think of it, I think of the two girls, right? A lot of the two who who do the things that we mentioned, um, the times in the book where they feel the happiest and the safest are the times when they are engaged with their religion and with their family mm -hmm. together. Um, and that was important for me to show. Um, and they're they're figuring it out, these, these girls. Um, But that, that was really important to me to show 
um, the kind of beauty and strength that I think that my characters get from their faith. Did you get any negative feedback from Muslims? Not directly. I've gotten questions like this before. Um, and I'm sure that there are folks out there who maybe maybe folks in Bay Ridge have heard of it and wondered, oh, no, it's another <laughs> book about, you They're know, looking wild for the twin Americans. girls now to see if, <laughs> if this was really about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, But of, and of course, it's not supposed to be a story that all um, Arab teenagers yeah. drink or, you know, they, they, of course not. Um, but and even within the two sisters, there's diversity, right? Mm -hmm. One of the sisters has kind of been drinking and rebelling this way for longer. And one of them really hasn't at all. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to show a diversity of experiences um, even within these two sisters. Yeah. Another thing I noticed, uh, and we're wrapping up very quickly, uh, very soon, um, There aren't many American characters. There is a friend and then there is, I think, uh, there's a central um, uh, guy who is a boyfriend of one of the girls or a semi-boyfriend. Uh, so there weren't many Americans. And I think the girl is a, uh, from a Spanish background. Mm -hmm. Did you also mean to do it or it just... Yes, I think, you know, Bay Ridge can feel sort of cloistered in that way. Um, it's very, very Arab. Um, and, but also even if not, like there's, it's, I think there's a, it's, you go to public high school in, in Brooklyn and, and in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn and white kids or white Americans are going to maybe be in the minority, right? At certain public high schools. Um, so I was thinking about who these girls would, would interact with the most. So tell me about uh, Bon Appetit article. Uh, you wanted to take your uh, husband to meet your family and it was an issue. There was an issue about it. And then I'm going to go back to your book because food was part uh, of the book. Like you made me hungry, especially <laughs> with mangoes because I love Egyptian mangoes. So tell me uh, about your husband as much as you can share with us publicly, but when you took him to Egypt. Sure. So uh, my husband is um, not Arab. Um, he is, and, and he's, he's white American born in Massachusetts and he's a vegetarian. And so it's sort of a comical essay about uh, my family's reaction in Egypt when they found out that he was vegetarian. And they panicked, right? Because of course, the way that they welcome, as many Arabs do, is with food, is with feeding. And they were thinking, well, what are we going to cook for him? Um, and it's it's funny because, of course, the point of the essay is actually that Arab cuisine is very mm -hmm. good for vegetarians. Excellent. There's so yeah. many wonderful options for a vegetarian. Um, but really, I think that their concern, right, was more about... Um, wondering about his Americanness and how much he was going to fit in in Egypt, how if, if they wanted him to love Egypt. That's From what they the want, first right? moment. <laughs> yes, um, they wanted him to love it. And he did, right? And he ate some terrific food and still loves some Egyptian food to this day. Um, so it, it's it's had a happy a happy ending. Did they like think of him as an American? Like, were they hoping that you would marry uh, an Egyptian American? Uh, you know, matchmaking is so 
vivid in our cultures. It doesn't matter if you're born here and it doesn't matter if your mom is Scottish. There is still matchmaking going on. Yes. You know, I'm really lucky that my family uh, here in the in the States and, and in Egypt um, has been really supportive and given me a lot of space to make my own choices. And um, they have been nothing but extremely loving and supportive of me and, and my choice of partner. Um, and I think that they were just really excited that we as a as a couple and even with our children are um, really, really love Egypt, love being in Egypt. Uh, we've given our children Arab names, right? It's very important to us um, that their identities as Arabs and Muslims is um, like central in our in our lives. And I think my family is excited about that. So you decided to have Egyptian cuisine in your book. Uh, why is it so important in our culture to have the food, even in our books? The food is in weddings, in uh, during death. And uh, I mean, why is it so important you felt to have the food, the Arabic food and Egyptian food in particular? You know, it's funny. A lot of people have asked me about the food in the book and it's like, I didn't even notice that there was so much, that's how much I love food or oh I didn't even notice. But, but I think, I think that food is a mode of communication for Arabs and like many cultures too. But I think that we communicate through food. Um, we apologize through food. We welcome through food. We celebrate. We, like you said, we mourn, um, And so, and a lot of times this family is struggling with words, right? How to articulate how they're feeling, how to be honest. And I think food is sometimes this way that like messages, right, are sent uh, almost silently, like through the, the preparing and the sharing of food. I want to thank you very much, Aisha Abdelgawad, for being on True Talk. She's the author of a very interesting novel called Between Two Moons. I encourage you uh, to listen to it or to download it or uh, to buy it. Um, thank you so much, Aisha. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed very much talking to you, especially that I just finished your book. And it's always amazing to talk to the author and to go deeper into the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, our listeners, for... Recording uh, stuff. Oops. Thank you, our listeners, for being on True Talk. And uh, thank you, my assistants, Frank and Greg, for always being there and helping us. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about Islamophobia. And uh, my co-host, Ahmed, should be uh, wrapping up his vacation very soon. And I should be starting one very soon. But always thank you for supporting WMNF. We bring voices that you may not listen to or hear unless, of course, uh, you are... Uh, listening to WMNF. Uh, as I mentioned, like, next week I'm going to be talking about Islamophobia. One of the, the leading authorities on it, Dr. Hatim Bazian, we had him once on the show, uh, but he was out of the country. We had uh, an issue with the connection, but inshallah next time it's going to be uh, perfect. WMNF Tampa, NPR News is next. <laughs>